Have you had a busy week in the Lefin market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9fin, where we bring you the need-to-know information on documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield, leveraged loans, and restructuring spaces. I'm Kat Hidalgo, a reporter at 9fin, and I'll be your host for today. When we'll be taking a deep dive into Intralot, looking at the available amount concept and thinking about Fit for 55. But first, we bring you Ninefin's Levfin Wrap. Hugh Simpson, our fantastic head of research and analytics, will be telling us about the high yield market. So kick us off, Hugh. What deals have you been seeing recently? Yeah, absolutely. So last week, we saw just two deals. It was starting to slow down as everyone's getting into the August break mode and bankers are going on holiday. So last week was... Shop Direct, which are now known as the Vera Group, and, and PeopleCert, both bringing some senior secured notes. Uh, this week, we've now got just the sole deal from Altis International, uh, and that was just a straight refinancing, so nothing too interesting there. Great, and what are the interesting trends in the market this week? So Shop Direct was particularly interesting last week. Um, so obviously, they've had a, a sale process in the mix for the last few years, and they've either been pulled on valuation concerns or uh, the passing of their uh, one of the Barclay brothers. When they announced they are possibly doing an IPO earlier this month, we were keeping a, a close eye on the docks and they had a very interesting equity claw provision, which we'd subtitled as, as claw me maybe. So what's interesting about this non-standard claw is that it can be used to redeem all or part of the notes within the first year after the issue date. Uh, after that, the equity claw then reverts to your standard 40% par plus coupon uh, from the end of that year all the way up to the uh, end of the non-call period. So the, what's interesting again about this is that the 102% provision was clearly designed to be in line with, with an IPO of the group. And that's been reported to be in the works for several years. So there's been some speculation on whether this feature can actually become the new portability. Uh, future issuers could be incorporating this provision for additional flexibility or you know, even if they're not even contemplating an IPO or a sale. Uh, we don't necessarily think that's going to be the case. Uh, I'd be surprised if it became a new standard. And if you look back through our database, uh, we've seen quite a few non-standard equity clause. Uh, the most recent would be uh, Adler Pelzer, who issued bonds back in 2017. Thank you, Hugh, for giving us the update on the high-yield market. Uh, on the leveraged loan side of things, we had AVS, ThinkSell, SGD Pharma, WebHelp, Colisee, and Yobeza in the market. All of them priced except for Yobeza, and we'll discuss that a bit later. Rolls-Royce was also uh, made a quick appearance in there as well. Um, but speaking to market participants, it feels like the market is breathing a sigh of relief at the easing off of primary for August. Participants will probably gear towards secondary over the next few weeks and mentally will have to start thinking about shaping up for what's looking to be an absolutely hectic September. On our forward deals calendar, we have potential deals such as Keepmote, Burger King UK and Berkshire Hathaway's Northern Power Grid. Those are the deals in the market this week, so thanks very much for wrapping with us. Next up, we have the Covenant close-up with Caitlin Carey, our genius senior Covenant analyst. Each episode of Cloud9Fin, Caitlin will explain another complex Covenant and its significance to the market. Today, we're going to be talking about the available amount concept. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me, Kat. So, what is the available amount concept? 
something that um, basically originated in leveraged loan documentation and is starting to make its way into European high-yield bond documentation now as well. And this is something that appears in the Restricted Payments Covenant and in the printed investments definition. Um, we've kind of, you know, started seeing it so far in the most aggressive sponsor deals um, that we've seen um, over the past like quarter or two in, in the bond context, but it's much more prevalent in the loan context. Um, and, and so basically there's this basket um, and it basically says that you can make uncapped restricted payments if they're funded from the available amount. Um, I put that in quotes because it's, it's a defined term that you know, has, has a number of different components. Um, and normally this is set at a leveraged level that's higher than what would otherwise be applicable for making uncapped restricted payments or permitted investments. Um, so it offers a lot more flexibility. And in some cases, it's not even subject to a leverage or another ratio test. So it's, it's just you know, a very off-market term Essentially, what the available amount itself is, is sort of like a second build-up basket. So we've got our build-up basket under the Restricted Payments Covenant. It's generally built from 50% of consolidated net income and then a no number of other components that are generally you know, ways of putting value into the restricted group equity contributions, etc. during the life of the bonds. So that kind of builds up over the amount of bonds and people can make dividends from it. So the available amount concept is a little bit similar in that it's basically retained excess cash flow cumulatively, um, as well as a number of overlapping categories of uh, value that comes into the restricted group. But the most controversial element that we've been seeing in the available amount definitions is that it often builds from permitted debt, meaning any debt that's permitted to be incurred under the debt covenant. Um, so I feel like I'm getting a bit technical here, but I think what I'm trying to say is that under the available amount basket, if the available amount includes permitted debt, what the company can do is make uncapped debt-funded dividends as long as the conditions of the available amount basket are met. Um, and sometimes there aren't any conditions because sometimes there's just no leverage test whatsoever on the basket. Have you been seeing this in any deals? We saw this um, for the first time in the Alstrom Munchko deal. I'm not sure if I've pronounced that correctly. Um, that was in the first quarter of 2021. Um, and then we've subsequently seen this in the second quarter in the Lanza specialty ingredients deal, um, as well as in Birkenstock. Um, there were a couple of times that we were aware of before where this deal had been removed after pre-marketing. Um, and so, you know, basically investors fought it so hard that it didn't make it into the, into the preliminary offering memorandum for the deal. Um, so it's kind of showing that this term that used to meet such like staunch resistance um, is now sort of passing through the market. We saw it in one deal in Q1, two deals in Q2. So that seems like a bit of an alarming trend, sort of a, you know, we're used to seeing those the COVID variant trajectories. So, you know, hope that it's not going to take that path. When we spoke about this in prep, you expressed a certain amount of outrage. What should investors be worried about here? I think investors should be worried because this concept can dramatically expand the opportunities for value leakage from the group. Um, 
you know, look, you know, we've been seeing um, capacity sort of creep up over time. Um, and, you know, people sometimes look for basket numbers. And the available amount, it's, it's kind of hard to put a number on it. Um, you know, you can see it as limited basically by, you know, maybe the amount of permitted debt that the company can incur. Um, but that is sometimes, you know, four or five turns of, of leverage. And so, you know, at the end of the day, maybe the constraint that the, is on the company for making dividends under this basket isn't actually a covenant constraint. Maybe it ends up just being a commercial constraint because they, who can they get to lend them the money that would lever them up to 10 times? That's our Covenant Close-Up with Caitlin Carey. Now for a look into the world of corporate social responsibility with our very own ESG Jack, otherwise known as the wonderful Jack David, Nine Fins ESG Analyst. Hi Kat, thanks for having me. So you've now put out a piece on some proposed legislation that's been going by a slightly misleading name. Named Fit for 55, it's been more likened to middle-aged dating apps than new EU law. So what do you think of the legislation? On the one hand, uh, it's very progressive and should have a knock-on effect to other nations like the US and China to introduce similar policies. However, it has been criticised both by industry for being too stringent and also by other groups for not going far enough. For example, the NGO Transport and Environment. Uh, One of the criticisms was for the allowance of LNG gas to remain in the shipping industry, as opposed to carbon-free fuels and moving towards electricity. Secondly, the allowance of biomass to be considered renewable within policies, and also um, biofuels that may come from crops such as palm oil that would lead to deforestation. Fascinating. So what kind of effect will this have on the Levfin world? Will there be sectors that are more or less affected? Uh, yeah, so I think the, the main industries affected would be uh, things like transport and logistics. Automotive and shipping fuels may now be included within the EU emissions trading system, which would in turn drive up uh, an already increasing carbon price. Uh, this would obviously add pressure to these companies in these high emitting sectors, but this higher price is also needed in order to incentivize investments in fossil-free alternative technologies. There's other, other industries that we uh, highly energy intensive, such as energy and utilities and raw materials and construction. Uh, the proposal also includes a carbon border tax on a number of raw materials, which would add pressure to these industries. Um, and there's also concerns this could encourage a trade war with other major economies. Great. Well, certainly some legislation to look out for. And thanks so much for giving us the ESG take today, Jack. Thanks, Kat. Next up, we have our deep discussion segment where we dig a little bit deeper into a specific topic. This week, we'll be looking at Intralot. And here with me, we have our senior legal analyst, uh, the genius Caitlin Carey, who we recognise with Covenant Close-Up with Caitlin Carey. How are you today, Caitlin? Hey, not too bad. How are you? Good, thanks. And we've also got Chris Haffenden, our esteemed editor. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Kat. Thanks very much. So, Caitlin, do kick us off. Can you contextualise Intralot a little bit? What's the situation and what's interesting about the case? Um, well, I, I think 
This is a transaction that has been in the works for, for a while. Um, the transaction is basically um, a restructuring of Intralot's um, 2021 and 2024 notes. Um, the uh, bondholders have been, you know, discussing this because it's, it's very contentious because the um, restructuring plan is treats the 2024s and the 2021s differently. So the, the 2021s on the one hand are being offered um, in exchange for um, new secured um, notes that are being issued out of a U.S. subsidiary of Intralot, um, and the 2024s are only being offered um, an, either an equity interest in the U.S. group that's being formed, or they're being um, allowed to, to keep their interest in the 2024 notes. Um, but the the really crux of the matter is that these U.S. entities are being taken outside of the credit group for the 2024 notes. So the um, notes that are the 2021s are exchanging for will have this effectively senior position where they'll have security over this um, U.S. group, but the 2024s will lose the guarantees that they previously had over the U.S. subsidiary, and they'll sort of sit at the back of the queue for any, um, you know, assets of the, the, the U.S. group. Um, and, and, and that really is the crown jewel of the, the Intralot business. I think the 2024 said um, it was around 70% of the EBITDA of the group. Um, and so, you know, obviously really, really contentious situation. Um, so, so, so they sued um, in, in New York court and there was a hearing on, on Friday, which Chris and I were both at. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, the interesting thing was just the fact that we're listening into a U.S. hearing. So the the twenty twenty fours, which claim that they've been trying to negotiate with the company for eighteen months and have been frozen out of the process, and this was driven by the twenty twenty ones. And the view was the twenty twenty ones were in cahoots with the equity to try and sort of push this deal through and try and to avoid a default in September. And their view was that they needed to put in a temporary restraining order to stop the exchange happening because the exchange was going to happen on Tuesday the 3rd so they actually put their filing in uh, last Thursday and it was being heard on the Monday um, the difficulty really for us listening in was just um, just to sort of really feel we felt very very sorry for the 24 representatives and particularly the sort of the two lawyers from Quinn Emanuel who were I suppose the, the judge was very tetchy, very terse. She sort of felt like she was, in a way, had already either made up her decision or she was, wasn't giving them much time to really put forward their arguments and was cutting them short quite a lot on some of the conversations. Um, and a good example, I think, was that after about 15 minutes of delay, because there was just so much technical problems in terms of people calling in, we found that you know she effectively says to everybody, well, I've allocated an hour for this hearing. We're now 20 minutes in, so I'm only giving you 25 minutes to make your arguments. Yeah. One of the things that she, she kept coming back to was the, the delay that the, the 2024s had, had all this time. And, and why is she only getting the, the, um, the filing on, on the Thursday before this transaction is going to close? And the fact that, you know, they'd only filed despite, you know, knowing about the transaction for a while and the company having launched the transaction uh, four weeks ago. Yeah, and the, the lawyers for the company will counter on that and say, well, we've been trying to engage way, way before that. You haven't engaged, but we can't actually get a restraining order on something until it's been launched. And it was only launched on the 1st of July. So their view is, and they said that they put in the settlement proposal 
on the 13th of July, which wasn't responded to, and they were hopeful at that point that they would at least get a response to their settlement proposal, which, when we looked at it, felt that it was actually a proposal that was fairly accommodative. It wasn't a case of saying, well, we didn't want you to take that asset outside of the group. They were just looking for some extra protection. Yeah, I mean, I think it's quite telling that the company, um, you know, didn't respond to that proposal. So, so the settlement proposal, um, you know, from from our reading of it, um, it looked like it would have just asked for a share pledge over the U.S. group, um, and from for some additional restrictions um, in the 2024s around incurrence of secured debt by the rest of World Group, and um, you know, with respect to application of proceeds of that group. The fact that the company didn't even entertain that kind of shows, though, that the company is like willing to play chicken, and they're willing to sort of like let the 2024 take whatever action um, y- you know does it seem like you know maybe they're they're fairly confident in, in their position um, I don't know it, it, it's it's interesting to, to see what's going to happen one thing is that there were a couple of different claims that the 2024s made so the 2024s made some contracts ba- based claims and they made some statutory claims so on the contract side they claimed that the transactions violated the indenture um, so so the company was taking an action in um, basically moving the U.S. assets outside the restricted group for the 2024s. And that required the company to use permitted investments capacity um, or restricted payments capacity. And the um, 2024s were arguing they had to use one or the other and not both because of the way that the the indenture was drafted. Um, And they were also arguing that the company's valuation was, you know, just completely off the mark, that that the valuation um, methodology that was used was in a appropriate um, and and valued the the company's um, interest in the unrestricted subsidiary way too low. Um, And so the court didn't seem to really want to entertain those arguments. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, effectively what happened was that she said, well, because there's been two independent valuations, then I'm not sure why you're, and you haven't disputed those valuations, so therefore I don't see where your argument's going. And what it was really about, though, was about the interest of that the value of the interest in the unrestricted subsidiary. So effectively what they were doing, they were saying pro forma the transaction, you would actually subtract the value of the debt that would actually be sitting at that unrestricted subsidiary, which then gets you to that point where it hits the basket number. So they weren't even going after the either or argument where they could use more than one basket. They were effectively saying by this sort of netting off effect, they would actually get to the lower number, which was this 178 million euros minus the two which is including a 205 million euros worth of new debt where the valuations are coming at 360 and 380 million yeah because it seemed like effectively like what the company was doing too is because the, the, the way the transaction was structured is that some of the 2024s, um, some cross holders um, between the 21s and 24s, as well as some other 24 note holders that exchange were getting an equity interest in this U.S. group. So Intralot was then pro forma for the transaction only going to hold about a 65% stake. Um, so what they did is, you know, from the, the company's methodology appeared to be that they were taking what the enterprise value was as determined by these independent valuers, subtracting out the debt that the new debt that was going to be at the U.S. entity and then using 65 percent of that to get the equity value figure that they were using. Um, and from from an indenture perspective, I feel like it really is kind of an uphill battle for bondholders in some ways, because it's 
really hard when the indenture, you know, usually just says that it's the fair market value of the interest in the subsidiary, and that's what's used to determine the the unrestricted subsidiary investment amount. Um, but it's in the company's determination and in their good faith. So it doesn't specify really a methodology in the indenture. And to the extent that indentures say anything, they usually just say, you know, it's gotta be the proportionate interest in the net asset value. That language is not in the interlot indenture, but the interlot indenture does say that um, when, you know, appropriate, essentially, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, it should be the equity value in that subsidiary. So like, it, it, there are kind of hooks for intralot in terms of how they've made this valuation. But it, it is really concerning the fact of the, the proforming of the new debt. I, th- I think the other thing that is interesting is that they didn't really go after the other aspect, which would have been under the change of control to say that this business, which they claimed is 75% of, 70% of the EBITDA and is actually the crown jewel of the business is actually being taken out of the restricted group. So therefore that could trigger a change of control because the change of control language has this all or substantially all of the assets of the group actually being in the language. Um, But one of the things that I think also came out of the case was the judge was much happier to say, well, I'm not sure that you've evidenced this issue regarding fair market value and the transfer, but you still have that ability to go after a fraudulent transfer. And, the argument that the 24s came up with was, and her argument was, well, why therefore do you need a restraining order? You always have a, already have a remedy, which is this. And their argument was, well, that will probably take at least a year to come to court. And by that time, the value has been taken away from us. And there's a number of transactions that the company could do without us having the ability to block or to vote on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem like some of it had to do with like, you know, the, the actual requirements for getting the temporary restraining order order and needing to show like irreparable harm and so the, so the court was saying that the fact that fraudulent transfer is there and it's a remedy at law she basically was like well that precludes you from being able to get this remedy of restraining the transaction before it happens you have to wait until afterwards but but as you said that's you know again you know puts the the bondholders in in a hard situation where it might be really impossible to unwind these transactions a year or two down the line the, the other thing that the bondholders have the option to do, and it was said in court and they said that they were willing to do so, is that they can accelerate under the, under the document. So effectively, they can put a request into the trustee. They have more than 25% of the bondholders instructing the trust, trustee to call an event of default, and therefore their bonds are due and payable. You are going to probably have to get over a fairly high hurdle to indemnify the trustee for wrongful acceleration. But if you can do that, then that puts the the trustee in a very difficult position because the trustee decides to accelerate the notes, then effectively that could push Interlot into potential default. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating situation and one that many in the leveraged finance world will be watching closely. We're coming to the end of our podcast today, but before you go, we thought we'd take a quick minute to discuss a little drama in the market. Yobeza hit a wall last week when it was pulled with the issuer citing market conditions. We at Ninefin thought this was a bit unlikely given the insane activity in the market. So we dug a little bit deeper and it turns out buy-siders have lots of different opinions. Some didn't like the new owner, some didn't like the old. 
One buy cider felt the ratings were inappropriately high for the credit, while another suggested more robust ESG policies um, had made buy ciders uncomfortable with the landfill business in general. It's unlikely the deal will go to private debt, and as one buy cider said, it's not unheard of to see deals enter the market after the summer recess. We here at Ninefin are keeping our ear to the ground. Uh, so if you've got any input on your Beza or the podcast at large, do feel free to get in touch uh, with me at cat at ninefin.com. So thank you very much to Caitlin and to Chris for giving us the down low. Thank you also to Hugh and to Jack and to you, listener, most of all. Hopefully you'll tune in next time.